Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Psalm 103. Psalm 103, like our previous weeks, we're going to be kind of bouncing around Scripture this morning as we think about the last theme uh, of our kind of Advent season series. Um, We began the series by talking about hope, and then uh, Drew Morgan came a couple weeks ago and talked to us about peace. Last week, we talked about joy, and today, the fourth week of Advent, the week before Christmas, Uh, we talk about love. So find Psalm 103. There should be a roll sheet at your table. If you're going to go ahead and fill that out, that'd be great. And then if you are not facing me, if you would go ahead and turn your chair to face me so that we can see each other this morning, that would be wonderful, wonderful. Um, So yeah, this morning we're talking about love. And as soon as I say that word, I know that every person in the room probably is thinking of something a little bit different. Uh, because there are few words with the kind of semantic range or, or diversity of meaning as that word in English, love. Often the world views the word love mostly as a feeling, right? We fall in love, or unfortunately for some, we fall out of love. It's mushy and emotional, and often it's superficial, right? We, we talk about loving things even though we may not know them very well at all. Like maybe that new band that has that new uh, hit song. You're like, oh, I love them. You've heard like one of their songs. Like, do you really love them? Or, or we talk about how we love pizza or we, we love certain foods. And that might be different than how we say we love our mom or our brother or sister. The, the way that we use that word is really, really varied. But as we learned just a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 5, biblical love is a lot more robust. It's thicker than the love that the world has to offer. It's a settled commitment rather than a mere feeling to be for the good of another person, often at personal cost, right? So if I'm loving someone, I'm committing to being inconvenienced by them. And I'm believing that that inconvenience is actually a good thing. It's a good thing for them. It's a good thing for me because that's what love does. It inconveniences itself for the good of another. And the glorious news of Advent is that the incarnation of the Son of God and our salvation all comes from the God who is love. He is love. His desire for those whom he loves is to bless them with the most abundant and wonderful and incredible kinds of blessings. And the chief blessing that he gives to us, his creatures, is himself. He gives us eternal life. So, so, so sometimes we may not think that that's the same thing. Sometimes we think eternal life is uh, living in kind of a paradise where everything is awesome and everything we want to do, we can do, and we're free to just do unimaginably fun things. And that's, that's true. But listen to what Jesus says in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the Bible's telling us that eternal life, this this massive, this supreme blessing for human beings is none other than 
true knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. That's the greatest blessing. That's the greatest good that any creature could experience. And it's proof that God's love for us is so, so great. Because students, he didn't have to give us himself. He didn't have to reveal himself to us, but he did. And he did it Beautifully. So this morning, I want us to see that the love of God is foundational to who he is. We're going to see that in Psalm 103. Then we'll see the love of God on display in the giving of his son. We'll be in 1 John chapter 4 in a few minutes. So if you want to go ahead and put a bookmark or something there. And then finally, we're going to be sent out to live in the love of God, confident that nothing can threaten to separate us once we are his beloved. And we'll wrap up today in Romans chapter 8. But for now, let's be in Psalm 103. We're going to start in verse 8. Listen to this Psalm of David. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. And then we'll dive into the word this morning. Oh God in heaven, we praise you. We honor you. We worship you together as the people of God who have been redeemed by love. It's with great love that you sent your son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for us and our salvation. It's in love that you chose to redeem us at all and to bring us into your family, adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And so this morning, I pray that you might help us to see in this Advent season and through your word, that if we have the love of God now, we have the love of God forever. And there's nothing that can separate us, nothing in all creation that can threaten the love of God towards us. Lord, I pray that that might be a great hope and encouragement, a great source of comfort to all of us in this room. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many places we could go in Scripture to see the love of God as a character trait for who he is, that he's benevolent toward his creation. But Psalm 103, we get a view of how he loves us in particular. So if we're taking notes this morning, the first big idea that we're going to think about is that the Lord is the God of steadfast love. The Lord is the God of steadfast love. We we believe that God has attributes, right? The characteristics or, uh, uh, yeah, these, these descriptors that we could say that are true about God. And we don't have time to get into how we might organize those attributes or Uh, for us nerds in the room, the doctrine of simplicity that says that all of his attributes are actually all the other attributes because God is one. But when we think in our own little finite creaturely brains about the love of God, we, we can understand truly, maybe not fully, but truly 
the fact that God is not just loving, right? Love isn't something that God just possesses like a skill or a tool that he uses. He is love. He is love. So we need to know that there's a distinction to be made for the God who is love. In one sense, God loves all of his creation. All of his creation he has benevolence toward. He's the creator. But in another sense, he loves his people, his sons and daughters with a peculiar love. His mercy and his graciousness, his abounding and steadfast love for us that the psalmist says here in verse 8, leads the psalmist, leads David to proclaim that he does not deal with us, that is his people, according to their sins. What a stunning verse. That he, the God of love, who is also holy and righteous and just, does not deal with us according to our sins. And then in verse 11, As high as the heavens are above the earth, that is a metaphor. That's a picture that is infinity. It's not like, well, it's actually uh, so many miles uh, apart. No, it's as far as the heavens are from there. That is infinite distance. That's how great his steadfast love is for us. Toward those who fear him, who know him, who have received the revelation of God. So his character, according to verse 8, go back, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's his character. Love is who he is, not just what he does. It's who he is. It's not just capacity he possesses, like a skill or even something like love for you and me, because you and I can be loving, but we often fall short. We, We often fail to love well, or we don't feel like loving the people that we need to love, or we love the wrong things, right? Our loves are weak or our loves are misdirected, but God is love. It's not in conflict with any other of his attributes. It's who he is. And so we begin in verse eight with who he is and move to verse nine and following to see that love on display, his mercy, his grace, his patience, his dealing with our sins, his removal of our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, also infinity. It's not like once we get to the halfway around the world, we, it's that far. No, it's, it's infinitely far. His compassion toward us, his being mindful of us, all these things and more in David's heart and mind are the ways that he experiences the God who is love. If we are looking at our own lives and our own circumstances, we cannot miss his love. We can't miss it. But sometimes our experience of God's love is thin, isn't it? We feel unloved or overlooked even by God at times, if we're honest. Even David, who wrote this psalm, expresses those kinds of sentiments and feelings in other psalms. And I'm sure the Israelites who feared the Lord and lived in exile just a few generations after David felt that way too. They would read this psalm and sometimes it would stir their affections to worship God. At other times, it would prick their hearts and say, God, where are you? You are abounding in steadfast love, but I don't feel it right now because I'm under Babylonian captivity. 
So we remember the greatest expression of love is the sending of his own son. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, near the end of your Bibles, and we're going to see this love on display. The God who is love shows us his love by sending his son. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7. 1 John 4, verse 7. John begins this section of the letter with a call for the people of God to love one another. But his reasoning is that love is from God himself. So let's pick it up in verse 7. Beloved, that is the church, the people of God, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There's that knowledge of God again. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or revealed among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's just stop there and say the second point this morning is that God's ultimate display of love is the sending of his son. God's ultimate display of love is the sending of his son. If we ever fret, if we ever become doubtful of the love of God towards us, we look to Jesus. We look to the fact that the incarnation, that Christmas is a thing, that Advent is a thing, that that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh to dwell among his people, to die in their place as a substitute, to rise from the grave in victory. Now, don't miss the connection that John makes in verse 7. Look back there in verse 7. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love from God comes from real, true knowledge of God. If I don't know him, I can't love. That's what John is saying. And if I don't love, verse 8, if I don't love, I don't know God. I mean, John is being very matter of fact here. He's saying, if your life isn't marked by love for the brothers, love for the church, then there's no reason that we have to say that you know God at all. But the opposite is also true. If you find yourself inconveniencing yourself for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the fruit that gives great evidence to the health of the root that says you know God and that God knows you. So a lack of love means a lack of knowledge of God. Why? Because as we've already seen, God is love. Now look at verse 9. God's love was made manifest, John says. It was revealed when he sent his only son into the world. That's the incarnation. That's the wonder of Christmas. When we think of Jesus, we are thinking of the love of God. 
When we think of Jesus, we are thinking of the love of God. And the birth of Jesus Christ leads to his perfect life and his atoning death. That's what verse 10 is telling us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That big word propitiation just means that Jesus took on the wrath of God that was intended for you and me in our sin. So when we sin, we come under the wrath of God. We have broken God's law and deserve his just judgment. His wrath is pointed on us. That's the the truth of Ephesians chapter 2 that we learned just a few weeks ago. But for Jesus to be the propitiation of our sins means he is the one who takes that wrath, takes that judgment off of us and onto himself so that it is done away with once and for all. The wrath of God is satisfied, we sing in in Christ alone. He took the wrath of God for our sake. Talk about being inconvenienced. The world does not know a love like this. This is the the truth of the logic of Romans chapter 5. You think about Paul saying, you know, even a righteous person would scarcely ever die for another person. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we know that Jesus is the son of God. He is also the son of man, truly human. So when we look at the life of Jesus, we look at a person who knew God truly and therefore loved faithfully. That knowledge of God is the the fuel, the engine that produces love. We mentioned earlier that our love is faulty at times, right? Our, Our love is pointed in the wrong direction. It's weak and it's frail, In addition, we fail sometimes to experience the love of God. It's not as though God's love isn't there. We just become blind once again due to our sin or our inordinate desires, as James says. Our feelings become out of sync with our knowledge. So we might know the truth, and yet we feel as though the truth isn't true. But for Jesus... His love never wavered. His knowledge of God, his father, sustained him. He always loved rightly and well. And I say this because we as believers now have the spirit of Christ in us. So we who have experienced the love of God are now freed up to love God and others just like Jesus did in the power of the Spirit. Those great commandments to love God and love neighbor apart from the Lord Jesus and apart from the Holy Spirit that he gives to us, they are impossible. These are impossible tasks. To love God, to love your neighbor, to actually love them, impossible. But if we have experienced the love of God, our lives can be lives of love. Now, this does not mean that we will always be loved rightly and well by those around us. So our commitment to live a life of love as those who follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus 
are not promised anything other than what Jesus experienced. So if Jesus was misunderstood and taken advantage of and maligned and hated and spoken poorly of and misunderstood, then why would we think if I just love as Jesus loves, then everybody's going to like me. Everything's going to be happy in my life. Everything's going to go well for me. Everything's going to be easy and comfortable. No. In fact, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Right? The, the, the world hates the master. Don't you think they're going to hate his disciples? But get this. Knowing that truth does not make us immune from the clear command of Scripture to love God, to love neighbor, to live a life marked by his love. We only have to look to Jesus to know that the response of those around us will not always be what we want it to be. But we remember that God's love for us is as sure as his son's death and resurrection. And Paul's encouragement to the Romans spells this out beautifully. So we're going to start to land the plane in Romans chapter 8. So flip back a couple of pages to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, one of the most powerful, important chapters, I would argue, in all of the Bible. Gives us unbelievable clarity on what it means to be a child of God, what it means to live as though God really has saved us. We have the spirit that we're heirs with Christ, that, that the, the promise of a future worth no sin truly awaits us. And near the end of chapter 8, Paul is doing a wise rhetorical device where he's answering questions before somebody can ask them showing his wisdom and the wisdom of the Spirit. And we're going to pick it up in verse 35. Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Third point, straight from that text, something we need to bury in our hearts. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul gives quite a list, doesn't he? Starting in verse 35, what, shall, what, could, what could possibly separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Maybe translations for our culture today might be hardship and suffering. 
with anxiety, with bullying, lack of nourishment, lack of protection, even death. Because when we experience these things as creatures saved yet fallen still, or even the threat of these things, perhaps we struggle to remember the love of God. When the threat of persecution is on our horizon or when anxiety creeps up in my heart and mind, it's easy to let the love of God in Christ for me start to get out of focus. And I start to think in my own strength, in my own cleverness, in my own wisdom, how might I avoid this distress? How might I overcome this problem? How might I avoid this danger or this tribulation? We find it hard to see in the fog of a sinful world and dim eyes that the God of love is steadfast in his compassion and in his kindness to us. Which is why I think Paul is reminding the Romans and us in verse 37, that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, it's not us. We are not more than conquerors in our own power, in our own strength, in our own cleverness, in our own grit. No, the victory is settled in our lives and in our hearts because the one who loved us continues to love us. Students, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Life or death, his love remains on you. Angels, the rulers of this world, not a threat to his love. Time itself. There is never a tomorrow when God's love for you will come into question. Powers, the omnipotent one has made his choice now and forever to love you. Is there a place in creation, a height or a depth that you might go to escape his love? No. This is the psalmist in 139. Where can I run from your spirit? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there as well. Is there anything in creation that can remove his love from you? No, not even you. You're in that creation word. You're not exempt from that as though, well, I'm just going to find a way to mess this up. And maybe the things outside of me, I'm not threatened by, but I know my own heart and I know my own doubts and I know my own faults and I might wander away. Impossible, Paul says. Nothing in creation. Why? Because that love for you is in the Lord Jesus God's love for you is his love for his son. Don't miss this. When we become Christians, we are united to Christ by faith. When we put our faith in Christ, we're united to him by faith. So now all of the truth of what God is doing in Christ, he is now doing in us. So for God to say, I no longer love you is just as absurd 
than if he were to say, I no longer love my son. The glory of Advent is that the love of God put on flesh and dwelled among his people and became the savior for their sins. He came because of love. And so now we love in response. So before we pray, just hear the kind of the benediction of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let me pray.